0: In the early 1980s, a woman by the name of Bayan Weyed, after what took many years of persuasion, sat down with her aging father to do a project that I've always wanted to do with my own family, record their oral history.
1: Uh, there was especially yes, there was a relation between me and my father. i tell you something. I am accused at home, at home that I am his daughter.
0: This is Bayan.
1: Number one, maybe we resemble each other. I I look like him uh, more than others in face. But much more than that, I always wanted to follow his steps. Of course, my first dream was to become a lawyer because my father was a lawyer. And when I was young, he always encouraged me. My father had time, had time to talk to me. Yeah, that's my relation with him. And I, and I loved him a lot. And of course, I loved my mother, but uh, he was mostly, he was my friend more than my mother was friend. That's a fact. In
0: 1979, her father had a stroke and he wasn't able to walk anymore.
1: He stayed in bed most of the time on, on a chair and then he used to write a
2: little bit, read a lot. He was thinking, of course, and he was dreaming of writing his memoir. So she offered to help her dad to write that memoir. This is producer Shahid Benyarde. This was around 1980. The family were living in Beirut by this point. And she says that every weekend, she'd drive from her house in Beirut. Through a very long road, because it was uh, a bit of civil war in Lebanon. And through the mountains and up so to a village to Monterey, called Ras And in two hours, I reached Ras She'd get there with her recorder and a pen and paper, ready to take notes. But every time she'd arrive, her dad would give her an excuse not to. I, after a couple of weeks, I tried again. For the third time, then I told my mother I gave up. That is until one day she went to see him and he said that he wanted to talk. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I went to see him once. He opened
1: the subject, not me. He told me, you asked me once, and when he smiled, a special smile, you know that as if he's a child again. You asked me once that uh, I did to dictate uh, for, uh, on you my, my uh, m- memories. My, I said, yes, of course. I said, I'm ready now. Oh, my God, that was the best gift I ever got in my life.
2: So that's what these tapes you're hearing now are. Her dad, Hajaj was Lebanese-Palestinian, but had lived most of his life in Palestine. So he told her stories about his giant private library in his house in Jerusalem, about how he'd been imprisoned by the British Mandate government in the 1930s. But then, when they got to 1948... He stopped talking. He stopped. 1948
0: was the year Ajaj and around 700,000 other Palestinians were expelled from their homes and country by the Israeli military and Zionist governments. And Ajaj didn't want to talk about it on tape. He
2: refused. He didn't want to talk. After 1949, he didn't utter a word. Before Bayan's father left Jerusalem, he had a career as a manager at a radio station called Palestine Broadcasting Service, a radio station I, as a Palestinian, had only heard of in passing. It was launched under the British mandate in 1936 and broadcast until 1948. But when I tried to dig deeper, I couldn't find recordings of the station online. It turns out only a few exist and they'd kept at the British Library in London. So I asked Corning Cultures producer Alexey Tak to take a visit.
3: To actually listen to anything that the Palestine Broadcasting Service aired, you have to visit this appointment-only section of the library in person. You can't get it online. You get there and you're escorted to a booth in the basement. Uh, I would have recorded all this, except you're only allowed a pen and paper to take notes, uh, no mics or iPhones. They sit you down with like a pair of vintage headphones on, uh, and they play these scratchy old recordings for you. Some of them literally come from a, like a reel-to-reel tape machine. Further negotiations in the matter of the truce are still in the hands of the
4: Security Council.
3: Uh, They gave us special permission to air them here on the podcast, but usually they aren't uh, accessible to the public.
0: When Ajaj was managing the Palestine Broadcasting Service under, at the time, the British mandate, the British planned to use the radio stations to shape public opinion. And over the following decades, as the country saw political upheavals, bloody conflicts and increasing annexation, the station was this really unique capsule of these critical moments in a nation's history. And that is the story that we want to bring you today. It's the story of Ajaj and everything he did while he was working at the Mandate government radio station, but also the story of Palestine between 1936 and 1948 through the lens, or rather the sound, of this radio station. I'm Hibba Fisher, and this is Carning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. Is predictable. Seen it and one story that always kind of captures my imagination is the, the street's lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning cultures. cultures. Our story today comes from producers Shahid Benyaradeh and Alex Atak. Here's Alex.
3: The inauguration of the radio station, the uh, Palestine Broadcasting Service, or the PBS as we're going to call it, was on March 30th, 1936.
5: And it was a big deal. There are um, extant photographs of the time uh, that show that um, the head of the British government in Palestine was there, lots of other eminent officials. It was presented as a a big deal.
3: This is Andrea Stanton. Uh, She's a professor at the University of Denver in Colorado.
5: Um, And most of my work has been around Arabic language radio. Is that too short? I mean I can like most academics, I can go on no, perfect. For a long. Time. And
3: Andrea uh, Andrea's really the person who held our hand through this story. She wrote a book about the Palestine Broadcasting Service called This Is Jerusalem Calling.
5: It was really kind of an amazing sense of responsibility. Uh, like it's not Obviously, it's not my personal history.
3: Uh, Anyway, back to that day in March 1936, the inauguration of the radio station in Palestine.
5: Ah, yes. Okay, well, so to tell you the story of the day of the PBS began broadcasting, um, I'd probably have to back up a little bit. Enrico no studia.
4: Should old acquaintance speak. Columbia broadcasting system and its affiliated stations present Orson Wells and the Mercury Theatre on the Air in The War of the Worlds by HG Wells. In the
5: nineteen thirties, uh which is the context for the Palestine Broadcasting Service, radio was uh not totally new, but it was still a, a pretty hot commodity at the time.
3: There are a few reasons why uh Britain wanted to start a broadcasting service uh in Palestine at the time. After World War I, Britain had a League of Nations mandate to govern Palestine into quote-unquote self-reliance. The population in Palestine around this time, 1936, was made up of around 90% Arabs and other Arabic-speaking minorities, around 10% Hebrew-speaking Jews, and then maybe a couple of hundred British mandate government officials. But the power was balanced in a way that was kind of the opposite of that. I mean, the the, the British mandate government officials, there were, you know, just a handful of them living in, in Palestine at the time but they had they had power over the country. And uh, the first reason that they wanted to set up a radio station in Palestine was because, like, at the time Europe was seeing this kind of general rise in fascism. Three years earlier, Hitler had been appointed the chancellor of Germany, Mussolini's fascist party were gaining popularity in Italy. And so, bouncing around on the airwaves across Europe and into the Middle East, you had these radio stations that were broadcasting like all of these various ideologies.
5: The British government, um, particularly the Foreign Office, also the Colonial Office and the British Mandate government, uh, was becoming increasingly concerned about uh, what they considered anti-British propaganda coming from an Italian-operated Arabic language station, Radio Bari.
4: Italia combatte. Questa
3: Some historians refer to this period as the Radio Wars. So
5: those stations uh, were of great concern um, to British politicians. They
3: were of great concern. So one of the ideas behind the Palestine Broadcasting Service was partly Britain recognising that they couldn't afford to let uh, like Italian and German propaganda broadcast into the countries that they had mandates over unchallenged, but. Reason number two was this kind of vague and imperialistic idea floating around at the time that the radio stations were a kind of marker of a modern society.
5: It was the age in which um, countries, uh, particularly in Europe, um, but also kind of feathering out elsewhere, um, were increasingly focused on the idea that having a state radio station, having at least one radio station, was just kind of a general sign of of modernity. Uh, And so that meant that uh, radio was seen as uh, a public good, but a public good that was supposed to kind of, the the phrase that's used at some point is educate and elevate people.
3: Um, Which I think if you... Uh, I think you can tell a lot about how Britain, like, saw the citizens of the countries that they had colonized or had mandates over.
5: The attitudes that um, British officials in Palestine brought to their understanding of what they called Palestinian peasants, Falahin, it's not a wrong translation, but it comes with a certain amount of baggage, uh, was not particularly different from the way that they also looked at some rural populations in India.
3: But it was also with a sort of wariness for the people that they were colonizing, like, if they didn't, if they didn't quote unquote like modernize, which is a grimy word, but if they didn't quote unquote modernize the population, uh, they may be more likely to rise up and destabilize British rule. That that was what they thought.
5: And the concern, if I could put it very, very crudely, is these people are important where they are, uh, and yet they have been left behind by the modern world. And so what? What radio offers is the chance to bring them gently into the modern world without alarming them and also without enticing them to leave the farm, leave the rural area and go to the city where they might become a kind of dangerous proletariat.
2: But by just existing in the place it existed, it was always going to have a hard time avoiding politics. The PBS was trying to meet the needs of all the communities living in Palestine at the time, Arabs and other Arabic-speaking people, Jews, many of whom spoke Hebrew, and the English-speaking British-mandate government staff. So they set it up like this. The broadcasting day would be split up into three sections, Arabic, Hebrew, Hebrew. And English.
5: So this is a multi-language broadcasting station uh, with the bulk of the broadcasting time in Arabic, uh, the second largest proportion or the second largest amount of time in Hebrew, and then the smallest
3: amount of time in English. But almost immediately, the station ran into controversy.
5: Yes. So this is a great question of what's in a name? Um So this is the the Palestine Broadcasting Station, uh, and it was broadcasting in English, Arabic, and Hebrew. Evidently, one point that hadn't been fully clarified before it went on air was what the call sign would be. Radio stations in this time, including the Palestine station, were not on air all the time. They were not 24-7 stations. They were on air for a few hours, then off, on air for a few hours, then off. And they would switch services within the time that they were on air. So between the Arabic service, the English service, and the Hebrew service. And so I'm <laughs> highlighting this because every time those things happened, every time the station actually went on air, every time a service switched, uh, the announcer would start with a with a call. Or
3: was... To put it in modern terms, it's kind of like that sting that we play at the top of cunning cultures
0: and one story that always kind of
3: but in, but in early radio convention, the, uh, the call sign would have been the name of the place. So this is Cairo calling or this is London calling.
5: And so every time that happened, there was the possibility for controversy and particularly the name. So is this, is this mandate Palestine? Is that going to be the geographical location of the station in the call? Is it going to be the land of Israel? And so this uh, led to pretty quickly a controversy um, between the Hebrew service and the other services. trying to figure out what what the name should be. And so that's why it ultimately... The the point that everyone could agree on was that the station was based in Jerusalem.
2: And so that's how the station got, um, at least on the face of it, an uncontroversial call sign that pleased everyone. This is Jerusalem calling. Each day in the morning, that message would be broadcast from the radio tower in Ramallah, out over the airways, and into homes and cafes around Palestine.
4: I feel it my duty as head of the government in Palestine, personally to convey to the peoples of Palestine this resolution, which is of the highest importance.
3: And on inauguration day in March 1936, the British High Commissioner, uh, this guy called Arthur Warchop, he stood there wearing a tweed suit underneath uh, the brand new broadcasting mast in Ramallah. Uh, In front of a Union Jack flag, he gave a speech to mark the inauguration. Uh, Quoting from the speech here, For some years I've been greatly impressed by the benefits that a well-directed broadcasting service can bring to the mind and the spirit of any people who enjoy its advantages. Broadcasting will be directed for the advantage of all the classes and all the communities. The broadcasting service in Palestine will not be concerned with politics. Its main object will be the spread of knowledge and culture." The speech was broadcast live and it became the first thing to ever air on the Palestine Broadcasting Service. What you're hearing now is tape from a later broadcast. Um, but because it was broadcast live, there there are hardly any recordings that were preserved. Uh, for the hours and hours of the PBS that was broadcast, so little of it survives.
5: I think it's somewhere between 10 and 15 hours total, just a tiny fraction of the overall life of the station.
3: So that's around 10 to 15 hours of tape um, out of an entire 12 years of broadcasting. But it gives us a sense of like what the radio, like what the radio station were broadcasting and what it sounded like at the time um, and it had a pretty wide reach I mean Andrea told me that she estimates around 50% of the country would have had regular access to the PBS
1: It was very well heard not only in towns not only in cities but also in villages This is Bayanun Wehead again The radio was the means for everything in our lives I mean our childhood and our adolescent as well We couldn't have anything else. When we had the transistor, for
2: example. Oh, that was a revolution. Transistor, by the way, is a type of portable radio. The transistor was a revolution in the Arab lives. Of course, when they listen to new music, when they have good songs, when they have good programs. But still, it was a foreign service managed by an occupying power, the British, who plenty of Palestinians were explicitly opposed to. Despite what Arthur Wakop said about the advantages it would bring to all classes and communities, the PBS definitely was not a runaway hit.
5: The inauguration starts, or starts the service at the end of March. There are lots of great expectations. However, the, the big story um, happens about a month, well, less than a month later. The main
1: case of the Arabs is against the British government policy in Palestine.
5: Uh, which is the start of the great revolt, uh, the great strike of 1936 that leads to the kind of um, great uprisings for the next three years. On favoring the establishment of a national
1: home for Jews, for God intentionally to safeguard the civil rights of the non-Jewish population.
2: The great revolt was an uprising by Palestinians against British rule. It started in April 1936, so exactly one month after the PBS was inaugurated. And it carried on as labour strikes, protests and some violence until 1939.
3: And so I think the station had become uh, quite quickly a symbol of British oppression and British rule in Palestine, uh, both for Palestinians and for the growing number of Jewish immigrants moving into the country. And by 1939, it started to become the target of attacks by anti-British Zionist militia or separatist groups.
5: There was a bomb that was planted uh, under the desk of one of the um, of one of the station offices, and it ended up killing a woman who was a broadcaster who broadcast for the English-language Children's Hour, and it also injured one of the Arab-Palestinian um, staff members. Um, and that was in the 1930s. Uh, so even from quite early on, Even when the staff was able to manage working together, the station itself became a target for attack.
3: But still, the British saw the radio station uh, as an accomplishment and they wanted to promote it. They started this scheme in the late 1930s where they'd give out radio sets to villages for free as a way to basically broadcast the mandate government's programming directly into these radio sets every day and so into the homes and cafes of people around the country. I mean, it wasn't like they were doing them a favour. These sets were pre-tuned to stop anyone from using them to tune into anything except the PBS, uh, especially any of the anti-British stations in Italy and Germany. In 1940, someone was actually fined 10 guineas, which was the currency that the British used uh, for tuning into a foreign station.
2: They could give out as many pre-tuned radio sets as they wanted, right? But they could only get people to actually listen if they had a reason to. So the conclusion they arrived at was to hire well-known Palestinian figures to manage the Arabic side of the station. The first person they hired was a poet from Nablus called um, Ibrahim Tukhan. He stepped down in in 1940, or maybe he was fired or resigned. It's it's really not exactly clear from the records. And the person that replaced him was Ajaj Nweehad Bayanstad, who seems like he would have been an unlikely choice. From the beginning,
1: they were against each other, definitely. My father, in 1932, published a weekly magazine called Al Arab magazine. And, of course, and it was stopped many times, and they
2: threatened him to send him again to jail, so and so and so. They were against each other, definitely. He was a lawyer by profession, but he was also a member of an anti-British Arab nationalist political party called Al Istiqlal, or Independence. But around the beginning of the Second World War, as Hitler-Nazi's party were gaining traction, Hajjaj and the British found um, a space of common ground. Both of them had interest in helping each other. World War II had started in 1939, and uh, although they'd been politically opposed in the past, Hajjaj and the British were at least on the same side now, in that um, they were, you know, both against Hitler and against the Nazis.
1: Yes, yes. After the Second World War started, a man came and told my father that uh, they asked me to ask you and tell you if you come uh, to be a director of the, uh, the Arab section, I mean, in the uh, radio of Jerusalem, this is Jerusalem calling. He said, me? How do you ask me? I'm a member of the istiklal party, the istiklal political party. So we are enemies of the British people and we are against the mandate.
2: How can I accept this? Bayan told us that he was interested in the idea of it, but he came back to the British with a set of demands and conditions which Bayan told us were basically... Um, I'm not going to report any news that is biased or unfavorable to Arabs and I'm not going to be part of your political agenda and I'm not going to let you censor me. They said we accept. Why they accepted? I said it from the beginning.
1: Because they needed now a strong man and they needed one who uh, looks for real democracy and who talks about democracy. Now it doesn't mean that they were with the uh, British forever, but during the war, yes. The Estiklal Party and the other political Palestinian parties were at that time with democracy and against Hitler. That's why he accepted at that moment.
3: So Noehead, this kind of card-carrying member of an anti-British political party, was now the head of the British Mandate radio station in Palestine. Um, And I mean, he couldn't start, it wasn't like he could start explicitly broadcasting anti-British sentiment on the air, but... He had this love for culture and the arts and he brought all of it with him to his job at the radio station. He started to devise a broadcasting schedule that would basically highlight uh, Palestinian and Arab artists and intellectuals and musicians and writers from all around the region in a more meaningful way than they had before.
2: What you're hearing now is one of the musicians he liked to play the most, Sami Shawa. He cared very much for music,
1: Arabic music. And all those, the musicians, I mean, they used to play, for example, on violin, even the the, the piano, whatever, uh, guitar, whatever, And he talks about um, using
5: the cultural programming as a means to kind of build up what we might call national pride or really support the kind of development of a Palestinian national identity so like news might be what people tuned in for especially at uh, moments of tension or moments <laughs> World War II I mean there's a lot going on between 1936 and 48 for which people might want to might have wanted to tune in to listen to the news on a regular basis but the kind of slow build capillary work of building up identity, building up pride, building up a kind of like common uh, cultural repertoire uh, across the the national territory. That's that's done in the cultural programming. That's done in the entertainment programming. There's also some interesting speculation about maybe the ways that um, at the level of language.
3: Most of the British Uh, officials who ran the station uh, didn't understand Arabic. So Ajaj and his colleagues on the Arabic side They might have been able to subtly broadcast things that weren't exactly in line with British editorial Uh, guidelines.
5: Not exactly evade censorship, but to put in some kinds of call-outs or call-ins to people listening uh, that were supporting a a Palestinian nationalist cause.
1: Yeah, of course. My father, of course, very well understood that uh, this station was heard in most of the Arab countries. That was something very important. He cared a lot to invite others from outside Palestine and also inside Palestine to talk, to give lectures, to discuss. That was very, very important to him
3: indeed. He cared a lot about uh, promoting Arabic music and the arts, but also about books and about Arabic literature. Um, Bayan told us that he had this huge private library at his home in Jerusalem, which she remembers from her childhood.
1: And I used to bring for him his books. I used to know where this is settled here or there. And,
3: uh, and uh, uh, ju- just to jump back a little bit here, I-, I think for Ajaj, his passion for what ended up becoming his life's work, uh, this push for Arab independence from imperial forces, it started when he was very young.
1: When my father uh, was studying still in the secondary school, he was studying in Su'ul al-Gharb in Lebanon. And it was the Ottoman Empire at that time.
3: On May 6th, 1916, the Ottoman government, uh, who ruled over Lebanon at the time, they publicly executed 21 Arab nationalist uh, journalists and lawyers and politicians and poets in a public hanging in what's now downtown Beirut. Um, And when that happened, it, it really kind of changed something for her dad.
1: That was the turning point in my father's life. That's how he believed in Arabism and how he believed that we should always be strong and we always seek to be independent.
2: Ajaj worked at the station four years, from the 1940 until 1944. And near the end of his time there, it was clear Germany were losing World War II. So the common ground that Ajaj had united with the British against the Nazis, that wasn't there anymore. Um, The way Ajaj saw it, uh, the threat of imperialism from the Nazis had gone. But the British mandate hadn't gone away. And in the mid-1940s, it was becoming clearer to Palestinians that the political climate in the country was changing. Given the new circumstances, he didn't want to be part of it anymore. So he resigned.
5: By the mid-1940s, kind of towards the end of World War Two, and as it was clear that Great Britain was going to pull out and leave uh, and the the daily life uh, in Palestine in general and in Jerusalem maybe in particular uh, became more and more tangential and also just more and more difficult. It seems that the, the relations between staff members were deteriorating but also um, as parts of the city got carved up into different security zones, the different Uh, Sections of the station actually broadcast from different parts of the city or worked from different parts of the city. Um, 1945 or 1946, um, there were soldiers from the Arab Legion who were just stationed at the station building all the time to prevent hostile takeovers. And there were a number of...
3: uh, While I was at the British Library listening to those old reels from the PBS, I found this recording of an attack on the station. Um, So quick heads up, I'm about to play some tape that includes some gunshots. If you'd rather not hear that, skip forward about 30 seconds. Um, it's a few minutes long and it's just the sound of gunfire in the station offices. It didn't come with any notes, uh, just a name that was uh, Attack on the PBS Studios. A recording technician must have just left the real recording before dashing out of the door. Do you know like, why the station would have been a target?
5: I I can speak speculatively. Um, I I think that what we're seeing is what becomes a trend by the 1950s and 1960s, that at most, if you want to take over a government, stage a coup, announce a new regime, then you go after the radio station. And so I think that what we see by the 1940s is that in Palestine, as in other places, there's enough of a sense that the, the radio station really matters, that it is a kind of sign of of government authority, a voice, uh, and if you can take it over, right, it's kind of pointless to take over a newspaper. There's a lot of them, um, and they're slow. It's a way to get a message out.
2: But none of these attacks were successful. The station carried on broadcasting right up until 1948. At the time, the British had already made the decision that they were going to withdraw from and abandon all claims to Palestine. A couple of months before, the United Nations had voted on a decision to divide Palestine into two sovereign states. And then, on New Year's Day in 1948, the PBS started their broadcast with this message.
4: Now, from this ancient city of Jerusalem, whence three great lines of faith spread out to the ends of the earth, we send across the world our greetings for this new year of grace, 1948. To the peoples of the United Nations we send greetings. May their leaders, who hold in their hands the seeds of peace or war, may they face up to the problems of mankind with sincerity and courage, and above all, in a spirit of
3: impartial justice.
4: We might wonder
5: whether that statement on New Year's Day was a reflection of reality or whether it was like a statement of aspiration.
3: Um, And it makes me think of the reason that the PBS was started in the first place to broadcast British propaganda. Uh, And on this final New Year's Day address, I mean, this was really no different from that. The British were abandoning all responsibility from what was happening in Palestine and what was happening to Palestinians. But on the radio, all they wanted to talk about was good cheer and bright prospects.
4: And finally, greetings to the people of Palestine, who in these first few moments of 1948 face a fateful year in the long and troubled history of the Holy Land. Theirs is a great heritage. May they, before this newborn year is out, may they prove worthy of the great traditions of their land and meet each other one by one in tolerance and forbearance, in peace and in Goodwill.
3: It was like they were living uh, in a completely different reality. But the staff at the PBS, the Palestinians and the Jewish staff and the British managers, um, all working in that office together in Jerusalem, they limped along, as Andrea puts it. They carried on putting out their cultural broadcasts, the music and the talks and the lectures and the dramas. Um, They never went off air, despite what was happening outside the station's front door.
5: This must have been a challenging, like, let's say that whole year and a half, all of 1947 through mid-1948, the, it must have been a pretty anxiety-producing, uh, destabilizing period to live
4: through. From Palestine, first pictures of the latest bomb outrage. Jewish terrorists blow up the goldsmith. officers club The result in Jerusalem. of the crime, the tragic scene is like a serious incident during the Blitz. Total casualties on this one day of violence was 18 dead and 25 injured. 65 deaths are reported. And there is little or no hope of survival for any of the 58 missing. Nearly 50 others were injured.
5: And to take it back to the radio station, to try and manage that on the cultural programming, on the entertainment programming side, and on the news side, especially in terms of the you know what news was broadcast and how it was broadcast, uh, must have been very challenging for all people involved.
2: And then, on May 14, 1948, the last British ship left from the port in Haifa And that night, everything changed.
4: At Haifa, the last British troops leave Palestine. The Union Jack was hauled down and the doors closed for good on the British mandate. Later in the day, Israel's flag was flying over Haifa and the Prime Minister, Mr Ben-Gurion, was there for the taking-over ceremony.
2: At midnight on May 15, 1948, the station was renamed from the Palestine Broadcasting Service to Kul Israel, or Voice of Israel. It immediately gets renamed uh, the voice of Israel, Kul Israel. Uh, and
5: so that history gets consolidated or truncated uh, from a multi-language mandate era, semi-colonial radio station into a national station that's the voice of Israel. Which
2: so, was the name that the Zionist groups had petitions the British to name the station in the first place. 12 years earlier.
5: So uh, it, it is the end of the radio station that I was looking at. It is not the end of the human story. And it's also not the end of the broadcasting story.
2: And for a lot of the Palestinian staff who worked there, many of them went on to work for the Jordanian Broadcasting Service that was just starting up. But that's where the Palestine Broadcasting Service's life ended. Bayan's dad, Ajaj, was on his way back from Amman to Jerusalem the evening of May 15, 1948. When he got to the border of his city, he was stopped.
1: My father got mad. What do you mean? I'm going back to my city. He said, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't. Tomorrow morning, I have orders. I'll send you where I'll send you there, but not today.
2: The next day, he was allowed through. And he made his way back to his house. It
1: was yani, mostly possible to enter Jerusalem, throwing bombs uh, in the way and people were dying, all people of the West Jerusalem were now in the side, so it was as if you are yani, facing I don't know what was very, very difficult. But when he got back to his home, it had been destroyed. And definitely the house and the library you asked me about and everything was gone now. Nothing remained. No house, no library, nothing at all. But he had to leave at that time. So he said goodbye, Jerusalem.
2: Over the next few months and years and decades, more and more Palestinians like Bayan were expelled from their country by Israeli forces and Zionist annexation plans.
5: I wasn't really intending to... Uh, look at the kind of afterlife of the of the PBS but along the way as I was doing research it it, I found two things that kind of made me think about think about those afterlives differently and one
3: one was a stamp like a kind of commemorative stamp a postage stamp Um, the other was a TV documentary both came out in 1986 to mark 50 years of call Israel
5: you know I went back and I did the math and I was like, well. 1986 minus 50 years is not the history of cool Israel. That's the history of the PBS that then, you know, that part of that station then becomes cool Israel. But this is a, this is kind of retrojecting a national history onto something that was much more multivocal and also much more complicated.
3: So in a way, a lot of the history surrounding the Palestine Broadcasting Service was left behind. That's, that's how Andrea puts it. The PBS headquarters became the Col Israel headquarters, and the station carried on broadcasting from Jerusalem. The broadcast tower uh, in Ramallah, the one with the Union Jack on the side that the British High Commissioner had stood underneath and given the PBS's first broadcast, that was used as a transmission tower by the Jordanian service when that started in the 1950s. And then in 2001, it was destroyed by the Israeli army.
2: Ajajan had lived the rest of his life in Ras el matan Lebanon, and he died in 1982, two years after Bayan's tapes were recorded. In his home in Lebanon, he rebuilt the library he'd lost in Jerusalem in 1948, but he was never able to go back.
1: But I want to say something. I don't live in Jerusalem ever since I left it as as my city. But it's in my heart always. It's in my thoughts. It's much more than It's in my days to come, in my past and in days coming soon. I never forget it. So it's living with me. Jerusalem is with me always. And this is what I I, I don't have a last image because it's a continuous image.
0: This episode was produced by Shahid Bani Uday, Alex Aitak, and Dara Ghanim, with editorial support from Dana Balut, Tamar Ar-Samni, Zayna Doudar, Dina Salem, and Nadine Shaker. Fact-checking by Dina Salem, sound design by Alex Aitak and mixing by Mohamed Khayzat. Bella Ibrahim is our wonderful
2: marketing director, and Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. Thank you also to everybody we spoke to for the story. Andrea Stanton, Bayanan Wahid, Hazem Nsebe, Jumana Manna, Salwa Miqdadi, Sahar Bostok, Andrea And to Ramzib Sharat who helped us with transcription and translation.
3: Andrea's book uh, which inspired the episode is called This is Jerusalem Calling State Radio Mandate Palestine. Uh, I really recommend it. It's rich and in-depth. And I think most importantly, it's very readable. She covers a lot more ground than we could ever have done in this episode. Also, a huge thank you to Paul and Julia at the British Library in London, who honestly went above and beyond during a national lockdown to digitise the PBS archive recordings for us. And thank you, lastly, to Gregory Haddock, David Gorin, and Tamara Rosamny, who helped us record a couple of interviews for the story.
0: If you enjoyed listening to today's story, um, please take a quick second and rate us on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. It really helps boost our ranking, so that other listeners can find out about us. And make sure to hit subscribe as well so that you'll get a notification whenever we release new episodes. Um, We're speaking of, we're going to be taking a break for a little while to uh, produce (laughs) more episodes for you. And in the meantime, uh, this is one of seven shows, soon to be nine (laughs) shows underneath the Kerning Cultures Network. Um, We have a a bunch uh, in Arabic as well. And so be sure to check out some of our other some of our other amazing podcasts, and stay subscribed to this feed because we'll be releasing bonus episodes over the next couple of months. Um, Thank you for listening, as always, and until next time.